Psalm 119, selected verses. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The word of the Lord. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Does the world feel a little crazy? Does it feel a little scary? And here's the follow-up question. Does it feel a little crazier and scarier than it did, say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago? And keep in mind, you know, 10 years ago we had that big financial crisis. Uh, Almost 20 years ago was 9-11. The world felt crazy and scary at those times, didn't it? So maybe it's truer to say that whatever time it is, just because it's this current moment, maybe it's always going to feel crazier and scarier than it did at some other time. I don't know. But, but here's one thing that does seem apparent to me. Um, more people are talking about how crazy things feel right now, and they're talking about it more than, than we were, say, 10 or 20 years ago. So for instance, there is a global conversation happening right now, and it's all focused on this question, is democracy dying? Dozens upon dozens of books and articles and op-eds are all focusing on that question in a way that was not happening three years ago. Or climate change has been a big concern for many years, but the conversation about it recently is reaching apocalyptic proportions. Or many cultural and political commentators now regularly refer to the world we live in as a post-truth world, a post-fact world. By that they mean that we have more and more information, but less and less access to truth. And on top of all of that, um, 
you know, we are dealing with epidemic rates of loneliness, anxiety, depression, suicide, and addiction, especially among young people. I think there's a character um, in the HBO series, Years and Years, who sums all of this up perfectly. At one point in the show, she says, the world keeps getting hotter and faster and madder, and we don't pause, we don't think, we don't learn, we just keep racing on to the next disaster. And I keep wondering, what's next? Where are we going? When's it ever going to stop? Now, listen, maybe all of this is just media and politicians whipping up hysteria over nothing. You know, um, fear has a way of generating money and votes. Maybe in another 10 years, everything's just going to feel fine again. But um, I think here's one thing we really can say, and the thing I want to put my finger on this morning. There is a growing loss of confidence and hope in anything we can really rely on. There's a growing loss of confidence and hope in anything we can really rely on in this world. If we can't rely on the survival of democracy, if we can't rely on institutions like business or government or big tech or media or Hollywood or even the church, if we can't rely on things like truth or facts, if we can't even rely on the survival of our planet, is there anything at all we can really rely on? That is a huge question in our society right now. We're in a series called The Book. We're looking at the Bible, and we're asking the question, um, what is it? Why do we need it? How does it work in our lives? In a world that feels like it's falling apart, is there anything we can really rely on? Yes, this. And so as we ask this question, one of the things we need to know is that we can never really benefit from all that the Bible has to offer us unless we understand how to read it. And that is a tremendous challenge in our culture today because we live in what is widely known as the most biblically illiterate culture that's ever existed since the, the Bible came to us. It's a real challenge for us to know how to read the Bible. Fortunately, this psalm of which we just read portions gives us a lot of help. And it shows us that when we read the Bible, we need to approach it three ways. We need to trust its authority, we need to unfold its meaning, and we need to rejoice in the person at its center. Okay? Trust its authority, unfold its meaning, and rejoice in the person at its center. So first, we need to, to trust its authority. If you look at verse 1, it says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Now that word law... It doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments. Um, that is a way of referring to the whole of Scripture, the whole Bible. So, for instance, in John chapter 10, Jesus was talking to some religious Jewish people, and he said, is it not written in your law? But then he quotes from the Psalms, which is a completely different part of the Bible. In other words, um, the law, the whole Bible is what we could call law. That's significant for us because... Um, the Bible doesn't come to us only in the form of rules and regulations. Tim showed us last week that the Bible is a story. It comes in the form of narrative and history and poetry. But whatever form it takes, this psalm is showing us that all of the Bible has authority over our lives. So again, if you look at verse 152, "...long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever." Or verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. 
This is saying that all of Scripture has all authority over all people at all times and in all places. And I'm hyper aware as soon as I say that, that that is one of the most deeply offensive things we could possibly say in our world today. This idea that we should submit every aspect of our lives to this ancient book, that idea for many people today isn't just ludicrous, it's offensive, it's dangerous. But I want to just point out a couple of things. And the first is this, uh, there is no such thing as living an authority-free life. If you struggle with trusting the authority of the Bible, it's because something else already has authority in your life. So for instance, in our culture, we regularly say things like, you should never give um, any external uh, truth source authority over your life. You got to look inside your heart and find truth for yourself. You, every person should be free from every external authority, authority source and should be able to determine truth for themselves. In other words, we should be our own authorities. That, that's one of the most popular narratives in our culture today. Ah, but don't you see? That idea that you should never trust any external truth claim and let it exert authority over your life. That idea itself is an external truth claim, and it's exerting authority over our lives. Why do we believe that? What, what's the basis of that idea? Where does that idea even come from? I'm going to come back to that question in a moment, but if you struggle with trusting the authority of the Bible first, just recognize that there's no such thing as living an authority-free life. You're going to give some view of reality authority over your life. But secondly, if you struggle with trusting the authority of the Bible, keep in mind that um, most of the things we believe most deeply in our world only make sense within a biblical framework. So I just mentioned this idea we have in our society where we say, you know, you should never trust any external authority source. You should, you should um, never let any external authority source have um, authority over your life. Of course, we don't really say it like that in practice. We say things like, you got to live your truth. You do you. Think about what those phrases are saying. A big part of what drives statements like that is this idea. We, we claim the full dignity and equality and freedom of every human being. We say that because we believe that every human being has equal worth, value, dignity, and honor. But let me ask you a question. Where does that idea come from? A lot of people would say, well, it's just common sense. But you do know, I hope, that Maybe you don't know. That idea has not been common sense for most of history. Thousands of years ago, Aristotle and many other philosophers taught that um, some human beings were born to rule and other human beings were born to be slaves. That has been the dominant view throughout history. So for instance, if you ever watch the BBC series Downton Abbey, that show takes place in England a mere 100 years ago. And in that show, what you have is these aristocratic lords and ladies and their lowly servants. That was the view. Some people are born to rule. Other people are born to serve. And, and when you watch this show, what you're watching is the death rattle of that view in this world. It's a crisis for the aristocracy because you have things like a lowly chauffeur who would dare to marry a noblewoman. How can he do that? He's trying to rise above his station. That has, has been the view that has dominated history. And the only reason we now live in a world that values the full 
equality and freedom and dignity of every human being is because of the impact of the Bible in our world. And I understand many secular people would say, no, no, no. The idea of human rights comes to us from the Enlightenment. 300 years ago, we got rid of ancient religious superstitions and we started ordering our world according to things like science and reason. And I know that is a popular narrative. Unfortunately, it's just mistaken. There are an overwhelming number of historians and philosophers, too many to name, but people like Charles Taylor, who won the Templeton Prize in 2007 for his 1,000-page History of Secularism. Or Brian Tierney, he's an expert in medieval history at Cornell. Um, people like that and many others have produced massive scholarship over the last several years showing that when Enlightenment thinkers started talking about human rights, they were not coming up with a new idea. They were appropriating a biblical idea. You know, um, cultural appropriation is a big topic in our world right now. Uh, Enlightenment thinkers were doing intellectual appropriation, biblical appropriation. That's what they were doing. So first, friends, if you struggle with this idea of trusting the authority of the Bible, the very first thing is recognize that you're going to give something authority over your life. There's no such thing as an authority-free life. But secondly, keep in mind that all of the ideas that already have authority in your life, they, they come to us from the Bible in the first place. Friends, we need something that we can rely on. And if we're really going to get everything the Bible has to offer us, then, then we need to understand the Bible. We need to trust its authority. And that word trust is a very important word. Because the Bible never just encourages us to, to do obedience for the sake of obedience. It's always in the context of a trusting relationship. So if you look, again, um, in our passage here, in verse 138, I mean 42, the psalmist says, I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. I trust. That's a relational category. Or verse 138 says, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. See, there's a trust and a faithfulness. When you come to God's word, it means you are not just coming to, to engage with some cold, impersonal facts. You're coming to meet the living God who wants to meet you and invite you into a relationship with himself. If you think about a healthy parent-child relationship, the child's obedience always takes place within the context of a trusting relationship in a healthy relationship. It's never just blind obedience for the sake of obedience. There's trust, there's faithfulness, there's a relationship. That's what it means to trust in the authority of God's word. And by the way, that does not mean don't ask questions, especially hard questions. Because a lot of people today would say, well, look, okay, I, I understand and appreciate what you're saying, but when I look at the Bible, I see so many things that are so repugnant and so offensive. What do we do with that? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just seen that approaching the Bible means trusting its authority. But secondly, it means unfolding its meaning. If you look at verse 130, it says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So here's the, the image. If something is folded up, whatever's inside of it will, will not be immediately clear. And the same thing is true with the Bible. It, you have to unfold its meaning. So for instance, yes, there are parts of the Bible that are very clear, very easy to understand. There are other parts of the Bible that are not clear at all that are very difficult for us to understand. You have to unfold its meaning. What does that mean? 
Let me walk you very briefly through three steps. You have to know it, you have to understand it, and you have to store it up. Know it, understand it, store it up. Very briefly, you've got to know what it says. That, like I said, is very difficult in our culture. Many people, including a lot of Christians, we just don't know what the Bible says. So, for instance, there's, um, I read regularly, and, and here other people will say things regularly like, well, I don't believe in God, but, but I don't need to believe in God in order to be a good person. The assumption oftentimes is, well, the Bible teaches that, um, that you need to believe in God in order to be a good person. And unfortunately, Christians don't help matters much here, especially because of the way we regularly treat people around this question. But that just goes to show that both other than Christians and Christians don't know what the Bible really says. Because when you read the Bible, you regularly see people who do not believe in the God of Israel. You see them acting more nobly, more virtuously than the people who do. So for instance, if you look at the book of Jonah, that's the story of Jonah and the whale. Um, Jonah is a prophet of Israel. He's a believer in God. He gets on a ship that gets into a storm, and when the storm hits, Jonah's asleep, while all of the sailors who do not believe in the God of Israel, they're the ones who are doing everything they can to save the ship. The contrast is very clear when you read the book, that you have these, these people who do not believe in the God of Israel acting more virtuously than the prophet of Israel. Or if you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you regularly see Gentiles. That's non-Jewish people. They're outside of the people of God. You regularly see them acting more nobly, more virtuously than the religious insiders. It happens over and over again. Or perhaps most famously, if you read Romans chapter 2, Paul, in that passage, he says that when Gentiles who do not have the law, that's the biblical rules and regulations, when Gentiles, by nature, do what the law requires, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Paul is essentially saying that every human being, regardless of whether they believe in God, every human being has a moral homing beacon hardwired inside of them. Friends, we have to know what the Bible says. And like I said, this is challenging. The Bible is a big book. It's a huge book. That's why I would encourage you, if you want to know it, to have a plan. And, um, and here's what I would say. If you are reading the Bible very little right now, or maybe not reading at all, don't make your plan for reading the Bible to read it in the course of one year, the whole thing. <laughs> because you'll just stop. Because <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Why don't, you know, do something that's reasonable. Do something you can actually accomplish. Maybe pick one or at most two books of the Bible and and say, okay, I'd like to read these over the course of the next year. That's like five or ten minutes a day. And then work your way up from there, okay? Um, But pick something that you can actually do. But gradually, you'll become to know the Bible. So that's the first thing. Just know what it says. Secondly, we have to understand what it means. It's really easy to read not just the Bible, but anything, and think we understand it when we do. Or to to read it and say, well, it means whatever I want it to mean. It means whatever it means to me. This is a very dangerous way of of reading anything or of, of doing language. Language just doesn't work like that. So if you're in an airport waiting to board a flight and the gate agent calls out, I would like to invite all confirmed first class passengers to begin boarding at this time, and you think to yourself, hey, I was confirmed in the Catholic Church when I was 14 years old. 
and you just sashay on up to the gate, that gate agent's going to say, what are you doing? That's not the kind of confirmed that we were talking about. Context matters. So when you read the Bible, you have to understand what does it mean? It's very easy for us to read it, think we understand it when we don't, and especially then to read something that's difficult and then get angry and just chuck the whole thing. So let me give you an example. Um, I was just talking in a moment ago about how um, our modern concept of human rights comes to us directly from the Bible. But when you read the Bible, you frequently see all kinds of things that are violations of people's human rights. So what do we do with that? For instance, you know, polygamy is all through the Bible. That's having multiple spouses, but in the Bible it's really not just, you know, it's only men that are doing this. It's multiple wives. What do we do with that? You know, this is um, an especially good example of why it's so important to ask good questions, especially difficult questions. And by the way, if you grew up in a church where you were discouraged from asking questions, any questions at all, but especially difficult or pesky questions, then on behalf of the church, I just want to apologize to you. That is so discouraging. People want to know, I am so sorry that happened to you. But listen, we should ask the question, does the Bible support polygamy? When you begin to understand that the Bible, it's, it's not just a rule book. It's not just, you know, some gallimaufry or mishmash or jumble of, of various rules and regulations, but a story. Part of learning how to understand the Bible means learning to understand how narrative works. That it's a story. How does narrative work? You know, the Bible never gives us a rule that says polygamy is wrong and always destructive. It does give us a narrative that shows us how wrong and destructive polygamy is. Because everywhere you see polygamy in the Bible, it's always attached to violence and destruction and relational breakdown. So, for instance, the very first place it shows up in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, Lamech. The Bible says he had two wives. He was a murderous, vengeful, cruel person. You're beginning to see the breakdown of human society, and it's attached to having multiple wives. Or you go on in the Bible, and you see Abraham with his two wives, or Jacob with his two wives, and you see the tr that was a mess, both of those stories. Are you beginning to get the point? You go on and you read about King David. He took Bathsheba and, and murdered her husband. It was, it was a, a tragic story. His home, and not just his home, but the whole kingdom suffered the results of that. And finally you get to Solomon with his hundreds of wives. And that Bible actually is very explicit in connecting his multiple wives with the breakdown of the whole kingdom of Israel. Everywhere you see polygamy in the Bible, it always leaves a trail of wreckage. That's the message. But you got to understand how narrative works in order to get that message. Friends, I understand. Listen, I'm not going to lie to you. Understanding the Bible is hard work. It's challenging. It's a difficult, large, complicated book. It takes place in a culture that is vastly removed from our culture. It's filled with all kinds of things that don't make sense to us. How do you understand that? It is difficult, but there are a lot of really wonderful resources available to you. So for instance, last week, Tim um, mentioned, just read this Jesus Storybook Bible. I know it's a children's Bible, but it's a really good overview of the biblical story. Or get a study Bible. It's one of, one of your most basic tools. It's filled with notes and explanations to help you understand the Bible. Or another one is, there's a website, thebibleproject.com. 
thebibleproject.com. They have all kinds of wonderful videos, short little videos that give, they give you an overview of every book of the Bible so that when you go to read the text, at least you've got a framework for what you're understanding. They're really well done. Or lastly, you know, in addition to coming to worship and listening to the sermon, we have community groups that meet every week that go deeper into the passage of the week all the time. That's one of the main reasons we're here, is we want to help you understand the Bible. So first, you have to know what it says. Secondly, you have to understand what it means. But lastly, you have to store it up in your heart. Um, if you look at, um, in verse 11, it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, this is talking about meditation, but biblical meditation. That means storing up, soaking up God's word into your heart. So if you look also at verses 147 and 148, it says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. So what this means is once you're beginning to actually understand what the Bible means, not just what I want it to mean or what it means to me, but what it really means, then you, you can begin to think about it more. You, you hide it in your heart, and as you go throughout your day, you're thinking, you're chewing, you're meditating, you're pondering, you're, you're, you're soaking it up. You're, 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 um, it's like a lozenge that just dissolves into your entire system. And the more you do that, the more it begins to change you as a human being. So notice once again in verse 11, that the, the meditation of God's word is always linked to a transformed life. He says, storing up the words. Look at what that happens, what happens from there. That leads to a change in the way you live, that I might not sin against you. The storing up of the word leads to a transformed life. So it's kind of like if you were to fill up a sink with water and then take a sponge and just put it down into the water. The, the, the sponge soaks up all of the water. The water gets into every nook and cranny of the sponge. So if you pick up the sponge and squeeze it, out comes the water. It's just soaked with the water so that when you squeeze it, out comes the water. Soaking up the word of God in your life is meant to transform your life so that when life squeezes you, when life presses you, when life crushes you, and it will, out comes the word. You won't be defeated. You'll have something you can really rely on. We all need that. But we need one more thing. We've got to trust its authority. We have to unfold its meaning. But lastly, we have to rejoice in the person at its center. One of the things that people have noticed about this psalm is the sheer joy and delight that the psalmist takes in God's word. So for instance, in verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. In other words, the psalmist is saying, God, nothing gives me greater joy than for you to tell me how to live. Now, here's what's so weird about that. You know, it's one thing to rejoice in something we can actually do. You can work on your skills as a doctor or an artist or an athlete. You can, you can develop your leadership skills. You can work on your jump shot. But it is another thing entirely to look at the entirety of what the Bible, how the Bible is calling us to live. Not just, a, you know, a good life, but a perfect life. That is not a cause for joy. That crushes you. So for instance, the great writer C.S. Lewis talks about how when he was a brand new Christian and he started reading the Bible, he says he regularly encountered 
um, parts of the Bible talked about God's word like this. So he read Psalm 19, which said, the rules of the Lord are sweeter than honey. And, And here's what he said about it. He said, this was to me at first very mysterious. I can understand that someone must respect these rules and try to obey them, but it is very hard to find out how they could be, so to speak, delicious. People may obey, they may still respect the rule, but surely it could be more aptly compared to the dentist's forceps or the front line of a battle than to anything enjoyable and sweet. I mean, you think about it and he's right. Obedience, especially difficult acts of obedience, there may be a kind of satisfaction you get in knowing that you did the right thing, but it's really more like having your teeth pulled than sitting down to a delicious banquet. Obedience is not tasty. It's not sweet. It's not delicious. And yet that's exactly what this psalm is saying. He says, I delight in your word. I rejoice in your law. How in the world are we going to rejoice in, in, in God telling us that we have to live not just an okay life, not just a, even a pretty good life, but a perfect life? The only way is to see something else in this passage that's even more perplexing. Many people have also noticed when they look at this psalm that not only is this psalmist rejoicing in God's word, the psalmist goes even farther than that. If you look at verse 48, it says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. Now in the Bible, to lift up your hands toward something is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. What in the world is going on here? You know, we said the Bible is a story. And and on every page of the Bible, you see that storyline embedded in miniature. And the story goes like this. God says, here's how you must live. Alas, you cannot. Ah, but here is one who can and did for you. The Bible, friends, it never only tells us what to do. It always points us to the one who did it for us. Because the only reason that this psalmist can worship God's word is because God doesn't just give us his word in the text. He gives us his word in the flesh. In the very beginning of the gospel of John, the the story of Jesus' life, the very first words in that gospel are, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. Jesus Christ is the word of God become flesh. He's the word of God become flesh. And when he came to earth, he didn't just store up the word in his heart. He lived out the word in his life in order to fulfill everything in scripture, everything in the law. You know what that is? That's the gospel. And it's the exact opposite of traditional religion. You know, there are a lot of religions, they'll give you rules, they'll give you principles, they'll give you practices to live by, but in every single one of those religions, your salvation or deliverance or liberation or enlightenment or nirvana or whatever you want to call it ultimately depends on your performance. And by the way, the secular approach to life operates according to the exact same principle. Ultimate human flourishing depends on human performance. You think about it, you realize that is a very religious way of living. But the gospel is the exact opposite of that. It doesn't just give us these cold, abstract, impersonal words that say, obey. It it gives us a word that comes to us in in the flesh and obeys for us. 
because Jesus Christ came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. You know what that is? That's a hero. And you realize we live in a culture that regularly trains us to think that we have to be the hero. I was in a gift store recently. And you know how in those gift stores, there's always a table, a book table that has kind of funny, quirky little books for sale? Classic titles like um, Best Dad Jokes. And, you know, I could pee on that and other poems by cats. <laughs> Timeless classics. In this particular store, there was, there was one book there that caught my eye. I was, I was so amazed by it, I took a picture of it on my phone. The title of the book is, I Am the Hero of My Own Life. I am the hero of my own life. That is the cultural narrative that we live in. Now listen, it's good to take responsibility for your life, but there's a big difference between being responsible and being your own savior, and yet that is the narrative of our culture. You have to be your own hero. You have to be your own savior. The narrative of the Bible is you need a hero. You need a savior. We need something we can rely on. There is a conf the loss of confidence and hope in our world of anything we can really rely on. We need something we can rely on. Friends, it is not ourselves. It's not us. When you read in the Bible um, about these, quote, heroes, it's easy to think, oh, the Bible is teaching me that I have to be a hero like Abraham or Moses or David. Learning to understand the Bible means learning to see the true hero to whom all those other heroes point. So Abraham, the hero who left his home and country in order to, to, to go on mission for God, points us to the true Abraham, Jesus Christ, who left a throne in heaven in order to fulfill the mission of God. Or Moses, the hero who delivered Israel from slavery and bondage to Pharaoh, points us to the true Moses who delivered his people from slavery and bondage to sin. Or King David, the hero who fought on behalf of Israel in order to slay the giant Goliath, simply points us to the true David, Jesus Christ, who fought on your behalf in order to conquer all the giants of evil, sin, and death on the cross. Friends, the, the message of the Bible is never just, you know, be a hero like Abraham, Moses, and David. The message of the Bible is always Rejoice in the true Abraham. Rejoice in the true Moses, the true David, the true hero, Jesus Christ. Because do you know what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross? Jesus was squeezed. Jesus was pressed. Jesus was crushed to death, but when he was crushed, what came out? The word of God. Scripture, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? at the moment of his greatest crisis, at the moment of his, of his deepest torment, out of Jesus, when you crush Jesus, out comes Scripture. Friends, the more you soak in the Word of God, the more you know it, understand it, store it up, the more you rejoice in the true hero to whom it points, the, the more you do that, then the more you will be shaped, you will be transformed more and more into the very image of the one who's at the center of it all, the true hero, Jesus Christ. We need something we can rely on. The Bible gives it to us. It's Jesus, the word of God in the flesh, who came and gave his flesh for you. Let's pray.